Um, we, we just saw like an animated overview of the book of Daniel. And before I get really into the nitty gritty uh, of the book of Daniel, I kind of want to zoom out. I want us to get into our, our satellites, our Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, whoever you prefer, rockets. And let's go up, right? <laughs> For how much is it? One point something million, you could take a 15 minute ride in a rocket and go leave the atmosphere and then look down and then come back. That's what I'd like for us to do as we look at the book of Daniel. I want us to take a, just a, like a downward view of this whole idea uh, of Daniel. Why, why, why is this major prophet in the Bible? Why is Israel in captivity to Babylon? What in the world is with Babylon? Why do we see it all throughout the Bible? Why does it appear at the end of the days? What's up with Babylon? Who's Nimrod? Who's Nebuchadnezzar? Who's the whore that rides the beast? And that's, I could say that. That's in the Bible, by the way. Um, so before we start, I'd like to just zoom out and to look at some of the big picture. And I'd like to start with this idea and take us back to the idea of there's an ongoing seed war. There's a seed war that started right in the beginning in the garden, and it's continued and continued and continued throughout all ages and will finally culminate when Jesus comes back, destroys Mystery Babylon, takes his rightful seat in the throne of David as prophesied, and rules and reigns for a thousand years on earth and throughout all of eternity with us um, as we are uh, co-heirs of the throne of God. But in the meantime, there's this back, you know, it's like you've got your phone and, and you, you love your phone. You're just, I love my precious. But in the background of it, there's a lot of stuff going on that you don't see. It's communicating with satellites. It's, it's GPS. It knows where you're at. It knows your heartbeat, even when you don't tell it to give the information. It knows all of your data. It's tracking you, but you don't know. You're just like, swipe, 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 how do I look? You're, well, that's what we do with our phones. In the Bible, there's a seed war going on. Whether you see it or not, it's, it's happening. And so look at the next, the next slide, if you will. The conflict, you can't see it. There's a serpent there, a silly sea snake serpent right there. The conflict of the ages between the woman's seed and the serpent seed. Maybe the next slide will be clearer. Show the, yeah, there we go. Genesis 3.15. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, God brings the devil, Adam and Eve, into the principal's office, so to speak. <laughs> and, um, and he says this. He says, and there will be a war between you, Satan, and the woman. I kind of wonder why women have been oppressed throughout the ages. You ever wonder that? In a lot of different countries, a lot of different cultures, what's the deal with the oppression of women? What's the deal? In this verse, actually, you see, like, there's kind of some satanic oppression that God said there's going to be a war. And I know evil men have, have been used as agents in that process, but, like, come on. Five wives... Muslims, and you could beat them, but not to the point of death? Come on, right? I mean, are you guys, you guys hearing me? And this is in the name of Allah, in the name of God. But evidently, 
um, there's been a war from Genesis 3 till now between Satan and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, we know this verse applies to the virgin birth. This is the, this is the, the proto-gospel. In other words, this is way before the gospel was even... This is God going on record saying, hey, women have eggs, men have seed, but some woman in history is going to bring forth a seed that will, through him, he will crush your head. He will end you. You will bruise his heel, your seed. So there's this seed war between the future coming Messiah and the devil, the devil sitting in the principal's office getting this information, and he's hearing God say, okay, because you trick people into becoming God and to think that they're less than, they didn't have everything and they, they lacked something and you created that gap and that de deficit and that fear and angst and, and you have appealed to their pride to where they could become God because you wanted to do that, you tricked them. Here's what's going to happen. Somewhere down the line in history, and God doesn't reveal this, the Messiah is going to come. And this promised seed, remember, God, God said this to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And Abraham didn't know it. And he takes his son up to, to, to kill him. And he's like, wait a second. If through my seed is going to all the nations, if I kill him, then how is this promise going to be fulfilled? Oh, he must, God must have to raise him from the dead. So he kind of believed in resurrection in that uh, Genesis 22 or 24, where he takes his son up to uh, be tested in that. But the point I want to make is that there's the seed of the serpent and there's the seed of the woman, which would eventually bring the Messiah, the virgin birth of Jesus. But you remember when Jesus in John 8, 44, he's speaking to the Jews. He said, you know what? If you would have known my father, you would have known me. But you neither know him nor me. You're of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And Jesus is telling religious people who knew the Old Testament, who went to church, he said, yeah, but you're of your father, the devil. What does that mean? They were of the seed of Satan. They were, they were of the seed of Satan. So there's been this satanic war running in the background that we don't see that's going on, whether you acknowledge it or not. And I wanted to kind of put that into play as we go into the book of Daniel. So kind of tracking along then. So the devil and the fallen angels knew of this war and this ongoing battle, so they decided to corrupt the whole human race to prevent this from happening. This is kind of why you see in Genesis 6 this crazy thing going on. Wait, all of, all of creation is corrupt? Are we talking plants? Are we talking animals? Are we talking atmosphere? Are we talking the human species as we know it? The Bible says it was all corrupt. Go to the next slide, if you would. So the Nephilim. In Genesis 6, we find out that the Nephilim were on the earth. Uh, there's different translations that are giving you the same verse. Genesis chapter 6, King James calls them giants. Uh, Genesis, the, the other translation calls it the fallen ones were in the earth. That's what Nephal means. Uh, it means to the fallen ones or fallen angels. So angels, which are called the sons of God, went into the daughters of men, corrupted the human race, 
And who knows? I, I'm not going to get off on this subject because I've, I've been down this trail before as we've studied this out. But I want you to see that it was only Noah and his family that the Bible says were perfect in their generations. It doesn't mean Noah was perfect because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It, it means genetically he was intact. And you'll see this later on in the law where God says, hey, if you're going to have an animal, that animal can only reproduce after its kind. If you're going to plant a tree and make a fruit, that fruit can only reproduce after its kind. You think with the seed idea, God's like, only after its kind, only after its kind. This isn't racism. This is speciesism. It could only be humans. It could only be dogs. It could only be horses. It could only be uh, olives. It could only be grapes. Uh, you know. And so God was very specific. And I think the reason why he was very specific, because something was going on in Genesis 6 where genetically things were messed up. You want to know why some creatures didn't end up on the ark? Maybe they weren't after their kind. Maybe they were chimeric of some sort. Yeah, there's a lot of weird creatures that didn't end up on the ark. So God says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But I want you to see this verse, Genesis 6-5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continuously. I don't think, look, are there evil people today? Yeah. Do people have wicked imaginations today? Sure. But it was so bad in that day. And God says it'll be like the days of Noah when he comes. So it's kind of a good idea to be aware of what was going on in the days of Noah. Because Jesus said, if you know about those days, if you know about those days, <laughs> then you need to know about the days when Jesus is coming back. Because <laughs> it's, I, I, look, are people wicked? Yes, there have been wickedness all, you know, all throughout history. It's been wicked. But to the pinnacle and zenith, uh, you know, to the apex of where it was back then, where God says, if I don't stop this, because if we're looking at it from a seed war uh, mentality, the devil was trying to corrupt the human race so that a human, a Messiah, couldn't come into the world and be the savior of the world and crush his head. Because he was sat in the principal's office. He knew the punishment, so he's like, you know what? I'll preemptively stop that. If I could get rid of the human race, and I could get rid of the future Messiah that's to come. So however it was done through the Nephilim and the giants and these hybrid and these fallen angels, whatever was done back in Genesis 6, look for it to happen again. That's all I'm saying. I got your interest? So Babylon. So we, we talked about Genesis 3, seed war. Genesis 6, the flood, the you know, God, God resetting everything. Only Noah wasn't corrupt in his DNA, his genetic makeup. He wasn't genetically modified. And you're like, wait a second. That's only CRISPR technology. Well, okay. You know, there's a lot of things that, from a technical, technological aspect, that maybe don't have their zenith from, let's just say, humans. It's not sourced from the human realm. And we're going to get into that today because as we unpack Babylon, the interesting thing is they're running this, this occult operation for the dark arts to get 
to get knowledge elsewhere and to bring it into the empire to advance their cause. And we think, oh, that's just ancient. That's just ancient. You don't think that stuff goes on today? Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But Babylon, after the flood water settled, and Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives begin to be fruitful and multiply, kind of after the original Edenic plan of God for Adam and Eve, which they failed. And so he's trying to reset with Noah. What happens shortly after is like the evil imaginations of the heart of man was still evil, and the seed war was still going on. Look at Genesis chapter 11 and verse 6. It'll be up on the screen here. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained for them which they have imagined to do. What's he talking about? He's talking about Nimrod in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. Nimrod, you ever heard that? Hey, quit being a Nimrod. <laughs> I like how Nimrod became a derogatory name. Maybe that's not politically correct to call anyone a Nimrod, but... Nimrod was an archetype of the Antichrist. Why? His name means mighty hunter. And some people think, well, yeah, because, you know, he was, at, he was way into venison and, and elk and stuff like that. He would have started a Cabela's for sure, you know. Um, yeah, it also means a mighty hunter of souls. He was such a, a, an influence, he was an influencer uh, of his day that he was able to rally about 70 nationalities um, and synthesized them into one location and started the Earth's first metropolis city. And it was a nation. So he builds a city and calls it Babel, which its name means rebellion towards God, or Babylon, just south of Baghdad. By the way, they, they are, they've only uncovered about, archaeologists, about 2% of what's going on uh, to unearth of Babylon. Uh, but that's where it's at. It's in, it's in Iraq. It's south of Baghdad, just off the banks of the great Euphrates River. Uh, and it was called, back then it was called the land of Shinar, but today it's called modern Iraq. But Nimrod started this first city, this first world government, with one language, with one world religion, with one system of works, or the idea that man could become a god themselves without God. This is the fist to heaven thing, like we don't need you, God. We're going to erect a temple, uh, a ziggurat, so to speak, or maybe some sort of like channel or portal or what they thought was maybe fallen angel technology or fallen angel in inspiration because there's a seed war running in the background. And so they're, shortly after the flood in Genesis 10 and 11, you can read about this, they're building this tower to reach into heaven with the pomp and the pride that we could get into heaven on our own. We could do it by our own good works. And this is, this is, such, the, this is such at the heart of the devil. Independence. Works. <coughs> um, I, pride. I could do it on my own. Um, circumventing God. So, this ancient word Babel is translated in two ways in the Tanakh or the Old Covenant, the law. Uh, Babel and Babylon. I think that might be on the screen. I don't know. The capital of Babylonia. So, of the 224 instances that the, the names recorded Babel, um, 
Only two are translated Babel, but the rest, 222, are traded Babylon. So when you read the word Babel or Babylon, it's synonymous is all I want to say. I don't want to get stuck on that. But let's look at this, for example. So I'm calling this a Babylonian sandwich. I like, I like zoomed out views. Go to the next slide. So the Babylonian sandwich. The Bible's Babylon sandwich. What do I mean by that? Well, in the book of Genesis, you have the first mention of the first city and the first world religion with a guy that's an archetype, that's an antichrist, that's in rebellion to God, that builds a system and rallies people. And by the way, he used fear. It's almost like, the, you know, um, uh, create a crisis, manage the outcome. He, he, kind of, he has that same sort of um, modality. Well, you know, we all got to rally, rally together because if we don't, then we're going to be scattered. That's what he says. And that's his sales pitch to everyone. You know, we all got to, and by the way, I'm just going to, I'm just going to need to be your ruler. I'll just default to that. I don't really want to, but you know, I'm a mighty hunter and I know what's up. So Nimrod is clever and you know, clever people, sometimes they don't get their inspiration from God, right? Is there, if there's a spiritual source where you could get information from God, is there an antithesis to getting spiritual information that's not from God? Yes. Yes. There's a seed war going on. There's Satan, the unseen realm, fallen angels, demons, and then there's God, and there's, by the way, just so you don't get discouraged, the good angels outnumber the bad ones two to one. We're, we're, there's a majority of the good. But the bad are very bad. And they're very nefarious. And they're very active. And some are called watchers. And let me just say this, just to, <laughs> just to increase your knowledge here. The word watcher simply means they never go to sleep. They're always busy. We need sleep. I need energy drinks, you know. But the watchers evidently don't need, they don't have wings, and they don't need a Red Bull. They're just always awake, and they're beholding, and they're reporting, and they're planning. We're going to read about the watchers in, in um, Daniel chapter 4. Oh yeah, you didn't think that was a thing? It's in Daniel chapter 4, specifically called an angelic class called the watchers in the book that we're just now entering. But I want you to get this view, there's a seed war, there's Satan, and he has gods and demons and fallen angels that were the Nephilim that did kind of cohabit and try to corrupt everything. God reset it. Shortly after, Nimrod comes along and says, let's, let's kind of become a god on our own effort. And then God scatters them. You know, he interrupts. He kind of, he's the disruptive technology in that case. He disrupts their babble. And it's, in, it's so interesting on our on our uh, Tuesday theological think tank, I'm, I'm visiting the subject of uh, artificial intelligence, and uh, so with interview with um, uh, Glenn Beck and Tristan Harris. I just I want to show that to you. If you, I know you know something about it, but I want to I want to show you it from from a different perspective, and it's kind of this a rebuilding Babylon in a techno way. Where, anyways, I'm not going to get into that. Um, but this Babylonian sandwich, if I could just elaborate on this. So God mentions Babylon, this, this icon of rebellion and human effort and independence apart from God. 
but rallying all people together, creating a problem, managing the outcome, using fear, appealing to people's base nature, false gods, Babylon. God scatters them. The very next chapter is chapter 12, where God says, Hey, Abraham, I want to make of you a great nation. And it's through you, the seed, is will all the nations be blessed. But I want you to see this Babylonian sandwich appears in Genesis and in Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 17. It'll be on the screen here. Revelation 17, verse 3. So it's Babylon's mentioned in the first book of the Bible, and it's mentioned in the last book of the Bible, and it's mentioned in the middle of the Bible in Daniel. That's why I'm calling it the Babylonian sandwich. And he carried me away, and this isn't the only that's mentioned, and it starts in chapter 14, and then chapter 16, 17, 18, and then Jesus comes back in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and we come with him, and then all this is destroyed, and Babylon's future is not good. Um, but he said, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. We're going to read about ten kingdoms, by the way, in Daniel. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Impressive. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of the mystery. Incidentally, the Babylon and Daniel's time, they were monogamous, but you could have up to two concubines and prostitutes on the side. So it goes on to say in Revelation that Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So we have Babylon in the beginning. We have Babylon at the end, and we have Babylon in the middle in Daniel. Babylonian sandwich. So in the middle of this Babylonian sandwich is Daniel, and taken captive by king, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who was basically a Nimrod reboot, also an archetype of the Antichrist, who says of Babylon, look at Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, it'll be up on the screen. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? He calls it great. They could see the pomp and the pride, and God humbles him. Basically, in chapter 2, God says, He's the raiser-upper and the taker-downer of all human government. And, and of course, uh, Nimrod thought he was God and could become a god. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a god and could become a god. In fact, he erects a 90-foot statue uh, dedicated to himself, that he is God. And God, the basic showdown is like, okay, there's a seed war going on. You say that you're God, I say that I'm God. Let's see who really is God. So this king gets humbled. But I just wanted, to, I just wanted you to see the zoomed out. Genesis, Revelation, Babylon, the ideology. Babylon, the ideology, this rebellion, this pomp, this arrogance, this the seed of the serpent running the operating system from both of these empires, these, these one-world governments, this, this great reset here, great reset here, great reset in the middle, 
and this pomp and this arrogance to synthesize and to harmonize, create a problem, manage the outcome, and I will get everyone by fear to, to convert and to conform to this dictatorship run operated from a Luciferian modality. You need to know this. You need to know this. So how did, how did Israel end up in Babylon anyways? So Israel went into Babylon and in captivity for worshiping other gods. If you were to type in, and this, anyone could do this, Logos, uh, Bible software is free, by the way. You can just download it for your computer. It's a great resource. Um, but if you were to type in the word gods, it's mentioned 253 times in the Bible. Gods. Yes, we're monotheistic. There's one true living God, but there's also lesser gods, and they operate. And this is how the epic seed war has continued. They kind of rule by proxy. They can't, you know, demons don't have bodies, so they try to enter people, it, like, like in the case of, let's just say, um, uh, who's the guy that, uh, uh, Judas, you know, entered him, Legion. Um, but then there's angels, uh, fallen angels as well. And they kind of rule by proxy. They can't, they can't inhabit a body uh, because they have a celestial body. Demons are, are bodiless. They're different than fallen angels. Um, so they kind of rule by proxy, but they have an agenda. They rule in the unseen realm. That's why they're called principalities. They're princes of municipalities. They have, they have strategies, and they have operating. Um, they, they have arts of war. They, they know things. They know more. They have watchers that are never sleep, that are aware. They, they're very intelligent. They're highly advanced. They know, they know your DNA. They know your, your family tree. They know your family history. They know. So God chose Abraham, and he said, through you all the nations will be blessed. And so then after 400 years of living in slavery, because God led them out, you, you know about uh, Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob. Well, then they end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then when, they, when the, the exodus happened and they leave Egypt, God downloads to them uh, the old covenant law. And in this old covenant law, for this people Israel, because remember, he's trying to sequester himself to pull aside. He's trying to, he's trying to sanctify, to set apart himself, a people that are pure so that the Messiah could come through. That's why he's so specific in the law, because he wants a peculiar people that are so unlike the polytheists that are around them that have been following false gods... He wants them so specific and so unique so that the Messiah can come in and then gather all the nations, kind of undo the Babylon thing, and then Jesus, you know, Acts chapter 2, where all the nations were able to hear everything in their own language. They didn't need, like, the UN. Isn't it interesting, the, the, the earpiece that you put into your ear to where it translates, because we don't understand everyone's language since, since Genesis uh, 11, Babel. It's called Babel. Isn't that weird? I just think, I just thought of it now, but it's not new, for, new with me. It's, but you put an earpiece in, you hear it. But at, at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God supernaturally reversed Babylon and allowed everyone to hear the gospel in their own native tongue, in their own language. And so... Just keep in mind, anything that the devil does is just an imitation. 
It's just, a, it's just an imitation. But how, how Israel then ended up in Babylon after they, they were just out of Egypt, now they're in the promised land, and God set up some rules and some structures, and he says, just don't turn to these gods. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you don't need to read very far into it to see that's exactly what they did. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, part of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6.14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Deuteronomy 28.64, and the Lord uh, will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods. As gods, it's like, okay, you don't want me, you want these other gods? Okay, you can have them. Joshua 23.16, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which I commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, there shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good of the land that he has given to you. Other gods. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah all warned Israel to repent and to turn from the gods of the other nations and to turn back to the God of Israel. But they would not. And so in Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 7, Isaiah prophesied specifically of even Daniel and some of your own sons who will come from you, will you father, shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. How specific can you get? Isaiah says, look, because you won't repent and turn from these gods and, you're, and the seed war is going on, and he says, because you won't turn back to the one true and living God and you have these false gods, that God told you the agreement. You double-clicked on I agree, which said, if you turn from God to other gods, he's going to discipline you by, by, by uh, dispersing you and you're being going to be held captive. And what often was the case when God would do that, they would find themselves in this situation and repent and sackcloth and ashes and, and remember back the days when they were in the Holy Land. They would turn and then God would deliver them miraculously. They'd go back into the land. They're all like, yeah, God is good. God is great. Thank you for this food. Amen. By the way, did you guys see these other gods? It's like, there was so cyclical. You could read about this in Psalm 106. And the, the thing in Psalm 106 where it's kind of like the, the dumbed-down version of the nation of Israel, <laughs> says, and they forgot God, and they forgot God, and they forgot God. It happened over and over again where they forgot God. I'm no different. I'm not saying I'm better. Um, but you, we can learn from their repeated mistakes. Now, turn, finally, turn to Daniel chapter 1. You're like, holy cow. Are you kidding me? I just want you to see some thoughts here. In Daniel. So Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, uh, came, and he was actually appointed uh, by the pharaoh of Egypt, incidentally, because the name Jehoiakim means like uh, Yahweh uh, appoints, but Yahweh didn't appoint him, the Pharaoh did, um, came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to Jerusalem and to besiege it. And I think what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking too, strategically, is like uh, it, the Babylon and Egypt, were, they would go toe-to-toe. Here's something that's, that I think we don't understand. Because the satanic unseen realm 
is built on pride and arrogancy and jealousy and competition and whatnot, it's not like they all get along. That's something that you never think about, right? It's not like they get along. Like you could put like four or five communist dictators in a room and they all have communism in common, but do they all get along? So the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand and the part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the, the land of Shinar to the house of his God. Here we go. Here's the big picture. It's his God. And really what's going on too is what Babylon is saying is, okay, Israel, your Ark of the Covenant God that hides in his magic box and your little weird temple and sacrificial system, you say your God's the one true and living God. I say our gods, our polytheistic many gods are the true gods. Let's just see. So he goes in and takes the, the religious priceless gold and ornamental and uh, ceremonial stuff from the temple. What an insult. Oh, you think your God's so good? Well, what's he doing now? But God already said, you guys leave me, I'm, you know, you're on your own. Now, God could have just crushed Babylon and just obliterated <clears throat> the gods of Babylon, and he will, and they know it, so they have to run like a, a, a deceitful campaign. They, kn they know TikTok, TikTok, they all know it. They're not deceived, they just deceive their followers, like, like proxy. The demons will deceive a Nebuchadnezzar. The demons will deceive a Nimrod. The demons will deceive a Biden, a Trump, a whoever. They will deceive leaders, a Mao, a, a Xi Jinping, a this, a that. They will do that, um, and that will happen, right? But they know when they stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that Jesus wins every time. So in Daniel chapter 1, I want you to see this. And the king came and, uh, and spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, and the children of whom was no blemish, well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding in uh, science. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. That's a quote from a movie and such as had ability that could stand in the king's palace in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, the king's food, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years. At the end of this, that they might stand before the king. Now among, among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave to Daniel the name of Belteshazzar. Go to the next slide, because this will have this defined up on the screen. So here's the names defined. Daniel, the names of Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, and Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. So we know them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's interesting that Daniel retains his name through most of the scriptures in the Old Testament, not Belteshazzar. But when his name's changed, his name originally meaning God is my judge, it was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning, meaning Bel's prince. Marduk was their main god in uh, Babylon. 
The name Hananiah, meaning beloved of the Lord, was changed to Shadrach, meaning illumined by the sun god. Mishael, meaning who is as God, was changed to Meshach, meaning who is like Venus. And you can see how the name is similar, but just kind of a move to the one true God, to these lesser gods, which is the real battle going on. The name Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, is changed to Abednego, meaning the servant of Nego. So, interesting. The, the, just, just this three years, too. It's basically like a deprogramming, but what, what was very clever of the king of Babylon is like, okay, I want to take the, you know, whoever the Jewish elite are, and he looked down on them, but he's like, give me the best of the best. I'm going to take them aside. I'm going to feed them my food, and they're going to have privilege, even though they're slaves, they're my captives, but they're going to be my, my liaisons. I'm going to deprogram and deculturalize them for three years. Interesting. I'm going to download them the Babylonian way of thinking. I'm going to instill in them what we think about our gods and our culture, and I'm going to cancel their culture, and I'm going to give them my culture, the Babylonian one, which we already, I already told you in Genesis and in Revelation. It's a Luciferian modality. It's a rebellion against God. It's if, I could, if I could raise the one finger, you know. <laughs> Okay, reverse, reverse, you're in church. Um, <laughs> so that's Babylon in a nutshell. And what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is saying, yeah, I got you. Your God ain't as good as you think. My gods are better. And I'm changing your name to fit my gods. And I'm going to re-educate you um, to my line of thinking. But bonus, you get to eat all my food but you're going to serve me because I need, to, I need to speak to your dumb Hebrew people. So you need to learn my language and my culture and my religion, and you're going to serve me. That was Nebuchadnezzar's plan. So that's what's going on. Verse 8 of Daniel 1. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he request, requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. You kind of see this with, um, remember the, the Joseph? Remember him? When he was thrown in prison and he was friends with the, the baker and the jailer and he got all this, all this. God opens these relationships up and he'll do that for you at your workplace too, by the way. Now God had brought Daniel into favor. Oh, I just read that. Verse 10. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my, my lord the king, uh, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. Why should you see your faces worse uh, liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall he then she make me endanger my head to the king. So he's saying, like, look, if you don't, if you refuse to eat the king's food and you look bad and the king's not pleased, that's going to be my job and even my head on the line. Please, Daniel, you know, we've we're, we're got a relationship going on. I don't want to be a jerk to you. I know you're in captive. This is terrible. But, I mean, you're in the king's palace. you got all this rad food to eat. Just eat it, you know. Then said Daniel to uh, Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Prove thy servants, I beseech you, ten days. And let them give us a pulse to eat, or legumes, um, beans, rice, uh, vegan, vegetarian, and water to drink. So, look, uh, people have just freaked out over this. Don't go making it like, I'm not, forget keto, I'm doing Daniel's diet. Don't do Daniel's diet, okay? The main thing that was going on was it's a, it's a seed war issue. It, the, the king had his foods dedicated to his gods. And Daniel was like, look, there's no prohibition against wine in the Bible. It's not like, oh, Daniel shouldn't drink wine because alcohol's, alcohol's not prohibited in the Bible. Getting drunk's prohibited, but not wine. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine and it wasn't grape juice. Come on, get off that subject. Get over it. Just don't get drunk and be an idiot or be ruled by it. So Daniel's not refusing wine because there's a prohibition. That's not it. And he's not pro, uh, like refusing uh, meat because you know he's on a strict vegan diet. That's not it either. It's because the foods were dedicated to false gods. And Daniel says, I want to be identified with the God of the Bible. And think about this. He's saying in 10 days, if we look worse on this vegan diet, which you would, you would look emaciated and all like, oh, I'm not making fun of vegans. I don't, I'm concaving, I'm wilting, oh, I'm dying. Uh, <laughs> that's my view of it. It's not true, I get it. My wife was a vegan chef, and so she, I'm, I'm making fun of something that she's really familiar with. So it wasn't that he was trying to prove, like, the vegan diet. Yeah, Tom Brady's a better quarterback than any quarterback ever, and he was all vegan. It wasn't like, in this corner, Daniel's Tom Brady, you know? <laughs> And the other quarter, it wasn't a quarterback show, showdown of like a dietary rest restrictive thing. It was a God issue. You're dedicating your food and wine to God. Okay, fine. We'll just have, we'll have just lagoons and water. And, and he's almost like he's tempting God, but he's like, God, okay, I'm putting your name on the line and everything. But God favors his faith. And this was a huge faith. I was going to have us turn to... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to do it. Turn to 1 Corinthians. It's on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because Paul has to differentiate on this subject. And I'll just be really quick, because there's such an important point that Paul makes on this subject with food that could be a stumbling block. But 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, starting at verse 4, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, or false gods, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For as though there be them that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, now get this, there are many gods, but they're inferior. They're not, they're not uncreated like the creator. They're created gods because God made all of the angels, he made them all, and they have free agency and will, and some of them decided to defect and to rebel and to influence men and women to do evil. But unto us there is but one God, and the Father of whom all things, and we are in him, and, and in the Lord Jesus, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge or that understanding or comprehension. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat as a thing offered unto the idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
In other words, this is a huge stumbling block for people. And this is what Daniel's trying to avoid here. And he said, but the meat, look at verse 8, this summarizes it. But meat commends us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. So Paul clears this up. It's the, look, you could be vegetarian, it doesn't make you better. You could be only like carnivorous, whatever that diet is. That doesn't make you better. You could be both, that doesn't make you better. He's saying whether you eat it or not eat it, whether you're, you're this diet or that diet, it doesn't make you better with God because food, the kingdom of God is not of meat and of drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Right? So it matters not what you eat. Daniel knew that, but for stumbling block's sake and for identification with the false God, he's like, nope, I'm opting out. I'm not eating the king's food. But I'll go on record saying, we're going to look better than you in 10 days. That's a huge step of faith. All right. So here's a quote. If Christians would only give over and above their reasonable service, the Lord would give over and above his usual blessing. That's a quote on the screen. There you go. Now, I want to point this out as I'm... I'm kind of fast-forwarding here, and I didn't know this introductory thoughts to Daniel would take this long. But I'm going to kind of fast-forward so we could wrap this up. Daniel, Daniel has a unique thing that's not exclusive to him, but in his time it's exclusive. God could do this through anyone, but he has this top-down versus bottom-up approach to wisdom. And remember, the temptation in the garden was, this tree will make you wise. It will enlighten you. You'll know good and evil. You will be like God. You could become a God. Daniel's not going for that sales pitch, but he has wisdom that is from God. It's from above, not below. So Daniel chapter 1 and verse 17, because what's really going on and, and what the King Nebuchadnezzar finds out after these guys only eat this vegetarian diet because they had faith in their God. It wasn't the food, it was God. And as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And the king, when he saw that they were better looking than the others, he's like, huh, who are these guys? And he gets really stoked about these four Hebrew children. And then he finds out, on top of them refusing the king's food and looking better as a result of it, and now he has them in his court. The king, remember, he's like, in his heart, he's like a god, you know? And I already just took, a, I just took out the god of Israel. Like, who's a, is there a god better than me? I doubt it. You know, he'll find, he'll find out later when he becomes a chimeric when he becomes part eagle and crawls around and eats grass like a cow. This is what happens to, to Nebuchadnezzar. You guys don't believe in this weird stuff, do you, huh? It's like only for sci-fi movies. The Bible's way more exciting than you think. Anyways, as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and learning and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We're going to find out in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's like, who's going to tell me my dream? And all the magicians come up and said, well, what is it? Tell us a dream and we'll give you an interpretation. He's like, uh, nope. 
tell me the dream first and then the interpretation. And they're like, what? Because you know, like any good psychic or anything like that, you know, tell me about your family a little bit. Give me just some information, you know? And that's what these, like, these cunning, you know, occultists were like, give me some information. And, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, no. You need to tell me my inner thoughts that only I know. Then I'll know that you're not playing a, a long con here. He knew their game. And only Daniel had that ability, which was from God. It was a God-given ability. So Daniel could not have learned what he learned from men, science, the occult, or Babylon, or his reprogramming, or his from being canceled from his culture. Daniel didn't go with that. Daniel got what he got, and he got it from God, and it came from above, not below. Look at, um, look at this verse in James chapter 3. James chapter 3 says, That kind of wisdom does not come from God. That wisdom comes from below, from the world. It's not spiritual. It's from the devil, which is spiritual, but not of the Holy Spirit. Where he defines it, this can be earmarked by jealousy, selfishness, and there will be confusion and of every kind of evil. But the wisdom that's from above, from God, is pure, peaceable, gentle. It's, it's reasonable. It's open to reason. Full of mercy and good fruits, and it's impartial. It's not, it's not racist or bigoted or judgmental. And it's sincere. So you can kind of differentiate the wisdom is from below, the wisdom is from above. So Daniel had this approach to not only save his life and his, his uh, buddies' lives, he had a top-down, not a bottom-up approach to wisdom because he knew that it had to come from God. How are you supposed to interpret a dream? Unless you're just making this stuff up, like horoscopes, yeah? Broken clocks are right, what, twice a day, except if it's digital. So, let me just, let me just kind of introduce this thought to you, and then I'll just kind of wrap it up. You're like, I could tell my wife like you've said that a hundred times already. So we're supposedly, we're just getting out of the age of enlightenment, right? But enlightenment from a cultural perspective to enlightenment from an occultist perspective is two different things. Because in reality, the people that are on the path to enlightenment, and I'm not just talking Buddhists and Hindus and stuff, I'm talking deep-rooted occult thinking, like would have been the people employed in Nebuchadnezzar's you know, um, uh, court, They've always been seeking this gnosis that goes way back to the tree, that goes to Babylon. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's this Luciferian sacred knowledge that had been hidden that they're trying to unfold um, and constantly seek. So the age of reason is both good and bad, though. It can be good to have empirical, scientifically tested data, but it could also limit us as to not believe what we cannot see and unsee. And what I mean by the enlightenment phase and the way it kind of hamstrings Christians in, in, in the era in which we live is it kind of it limits our belief in the supernatural because 
really the age of enlightenment introduced to us the scientific method. You know, if you can't see it, measure it, record your data, check it against your hypothesis, uh, and have it um, tested with empirical resources, then it's not believable. Uh, Francis Bacon, by the way, Let, let's kind of move along here. Oh, there's a great quote. We have to stop thinking less like scientists and start thinking more like psalmists. But just believing God, believing in the supernatural. Science is good, but let's not limit God. Go to the next, next one. Francis Bacon, he was the father of um, the something modern science and scientific method, which is ironic because he was a 33rd uh, degree Freemason Rosicrucian. So he did believe in the supernatural, but um, also he brought into this world enlightenment, which made us think that we, if we can't see it, then we won't believe it. Now, I want you to skip Adam, if you would, because I'm not going to go off into all this occult stuff. And I have a lot, quotes from Aleister Crowley, uh, Marilyn Manson, all this stuff. I, I was going to go through all that because I wanted to just kind of go through the slides until I'll tell you when to stop here. Go to the next slide. Being woke is not the same as thing as being enlightened. Go to the next slide. Uh, Lucifer chose to be an individual instead of mindlessly following the herd. Be your own leader. Think for yourself. You're, you're going to find like even with this Aleister Crowley quote, do it thou will, shall be the whole of the law. The idea is root this be your own God idea, this independent, no one's gonna, no one's gonna tell me what to do. <clears throat> I, 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 I do what I will in my own agency. This is what the rebellious angels thought in Genesis 6. This is what devil, the devil thought in Isaiah 14. I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times he said, I will ascend. I will be like, I will do this. It's rooted all of these guys that are on this path of enlightenment, that are seeking knowledge, that are in the occult, that are into dark magic, that are into all the things that the people in Nebuchadnezzar's court were, that were competing with Daniel... These people were getting bottom-up knowledge, but they called it enlightenment. Daniel was getting top-down knowledge, which was from God. That's how he was able to see things that they couldn't because the demons aren't omniscient. But go to the next slide. H.P. Lovecraft, I don't recommend this book, but At the Mountains of Madness, this is a very occultic, high-regard piece of literature. He says... A common theme in occultism is the, is the existence of an ancient race that was more intelligent than modern man and whose secrets have been passed down or lost to time. The reason they believe that fallen angels were downloading this mystical gnosis, this sacred wisdom and enlightenment and knowledge, and all of the occult people mostly trace it back to this, this other race, this elder race, so to speak, that are kind of extraterrestrial, not UFO in the sense, not ancient aliens, but they believe that they're, they're angelic or demonic beings um, <clears throat> that will give them insights that the God of the Bible will not. In fact, look at this next quote. This is very fascinating. I think it's up there. Well, Albert Pike, he wrote Morals and Dogma, kind of like the Holy Bible of the Masons. 
common theme in occultism is the existence of an ancient race that was more intelligent than the modern man whose secrets have been passed down or lost to time. That's why secret societies are a big deal uh, to them vis-a-vis -vis the Freemasons. Now go to the next one. So he says this. Albert Pike, I want to read this. That which we must say to the crowd is, to the crowd, we worship a god, but it is the god that one adores without superstition. To you, sovereign grand inspectors general, we say this, that you may repeat it to the brethren of the 32nd, 31st, and 30th degrees in the Masonic religion, should be by all of us initiates to the higher degrees, maintain the purity of the Luciferian doctrine. If Lucifer were, were not God, would Adonai, or Jesus, as they say, culminate and spread false and harmful statements about him? Yes, Lucifer is God. Really, in the age of occult enlightenment, is they think God is the bad guy and the devil is the good guy because God just has you in restraints. You're not able to do what you really want. You can't do as thou wilt. But if you just kind of go over to this side you could fulfill the law and do as thou wilt. It's very cunning and very crafty. And as we start unpacking Daniel, because Daniel, as it relates to the past, it also has a lot of future prophetic implications yet to come that's going to kind of give us further insight into what these dudes are up to. Now, the light they were seeking in this path of enlightenment is Lucifer. Now, I just bring this up because in closing, De or Deuteronomy 18, look at this. God says already, there shall be not found among you anyone who makes a son or his daughter pass through the fire, uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, interprets omens, a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or like, he's covering all the new age gamuts, right? or a spiritualist, or one who calls up the dead, that's necromancing, it's all this witch hunting and ghost hunting stuff. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things to the Lord, your God will drive them out before you. It's not because they don't work, it's because they're forbidden. They do work. But it's the wrong source. Don't leave it to fiction. Why do I say this? Ephesians 5. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what I'm doing today. Why? Last verse of the day. Daniel chapter 1, verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of Daniel and the four Hebrew children, he found them ten times better, get this, than all the magicians and all the enchanters and sorcerers that were in his kingdom. So Daniel purposed in his heart, there's only one God. Though there be gods many, for us there's one, the creator of all, yet uncreated. He purposed in his heart, I'm not going to eat the king's meat that's dedicated to false gods. Put me to test. We will look better in 10 days. If it, weren't, if it doesn't happen, chop my head off. He has faith. The king comes and he's like, wow, you didn't drink my eat or, or eat my meat or drink my wine and you guys just had water and lagoons? Boring. Whatever. You know, I don't know how you look better. It doesn't make sense to anyone. But 
You do, and so what do you guys have to say? And he found out that they had more wisdom than all the people that were practicing the occult and enlightenment. The bottom-up people that are getting their information from demons and darkness and false gods could not compare to Daniel that was getting his information top-down. Does that make sense to you? So this book really isn't about like, works like, hey, you better promise to do this and to do that, and how the book normally goes. I'm taking a supernatural look at this from a bigger picture. There's a seed war going on, and we're going to find out in the future what's going on. So we will see in Daniel that there is a seen and an unseen war still going on. We'll see in the coming chapters the forces of darkness, the princes and principalities, the watchers, not principalities, principalities, and the angels, both good and evil, the occult from below and the wisdom of God from above, giving divine providence and guidance as prophecy is revealed. And as Daniel says in the last days, he says this, knowledge will increase. And there's things that have been concealed that will be revealed I want to take this journey with you, but let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we could gather, and uh, I know we took a little bit longer today, but I just trust the things that were said uh, would have brought glory to your name, and maybe that you have given us a little bit more of an insight and some revelation into who you are and to what you want to do with us as a church in this day in which we live. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.